Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I uh, am Courtney Marie Andrews. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and just trying to write songs when they feel right to write. <laughs> Red roof rain on the window, free breakfast in a The emptiness, distractions of hope, mind wanders while I pretend to stay. Why do I give you satisfaction knowing I still care? You only call when it's your love on the line. I mean, many people... I think when they go through uh, breakups, when they go through trauma, when they go through some sort of life transformation, right? It's like, there's a few ways to process it, right? Therapy, maybe you talk to your friends, maybe you get drunk, right? Um, The distillation process for you, does it take years? Does it take moments? Like when when a song sort of starts to trickle in about a particular pain point, let's say. Do you think like they come more through the hourglass of time or actually more immediate? I go through periods of like extreme exodus of songs. Um, They do seem to coincide with times of personal turmoil. Um, It's a way to sort of process things that happen, but I do what I call chunk writing kind of regardless of what I'm going through. Sometimes it's a lot easier when it's, I have a lot to talk about, but um, I will write, like for instance, this past month, I wrote 30 songs in a month. And then I probably won't write for a while. You know, for like two or three months, I'll be dry. So that's just kind of how I've always operated for whatever reason, I, I have like a huge kind of big chunk of writing that I do and then I sort of kind of take a step back from it. Well, hello again, everybody. You're tuned in to the show On the Road, the podcast that dives deep with artists from around the world. My name is Zach Lupiton, and uh, as you heard, we are talking to the amazing singer-songwriter Courtney Marie Andrews this week. Now, I think there's something at the heart of her new record, Loose Future, that really speaks to me. It's the idea that this right now may be the good old days and that we have to realize and be present where we are. I realized the other day that, yes, I am kind of reaching the middle of my life. I've had my heart broken. You can always dive back into those pain points. You can always tell that story again in a song. But also, I see the look on my daughter's face when she sees a dog, when she sees a purple flower. It blows her mind. 
and it makes me realize that I need to be that present too. Okay, without further ado, here's Courtney Marie Andrews. I don't recognize the way you see me. I don't recognize the way you love. Something deep inside me won't believe you. Even when you tell me I'm enough. It's always funny to me when I get back from a tour or something and I'm really exhausted and I'm like, I just don't want to, I don't want to see my guitar. I don't want to think about songs. And then it lasts for what, like three hours or something. And then like my, my wife, like, is like, I'm going to be gone for a while. And I'm like, and then I'm like by myself, like in the room and you're like, all right, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And like, that's almost the point where like out of that exhaustion where you think nothing is going to come where everything comes in some way yeah. like that emptiness yeah where you're not trying to to focus on you're when you're exhausted I feel like you can channel things in a different way because you're not so hyper focused on things uh and nitpicking 30 songs in a month that almost feels like clocking in like at the at the factory in a way like <laughs> like going like you know what I gotta like I gotta manufacture the next piece of this puzzle yeah I mean, that was a particular, it was a particular uh, intense kind of release of, of material, but it's not always that uh, abundant, but, but this, yeah, this past one was for whatever reason. I was playing my mom, who's in town, uh, Loose Future, walking on the beach. She's a diehard Linda Ronstadt acolyte, I would say. And she hasn't probably listened to any new music, like, on her own for probably 30 years, you know, like she doesn't know where to seek it out, doesn't try to seek it out, you know? I'm like, I don't know, but like this, this is for you. Like, I feel like this is like your voice is like for her, you know? And she was like, yeah, all right. (laughs) I can't help it if I'm still in love. And I think that there's there's something about, um, you know, I don't know, the natural ache in your in your voice, even on the more upbeat sort of forward thinking songs on this record. Right. I think this Loose Future project feels like a release uh, from a lot of past burdens, past fear and and angst Um, and just being like, you know, I don't need plans. I need to, like, focus on the good times that are actually happening in front of me right now, Mm. which is really hard. I mean, and you say, you know, towards the end of the record, like it's strange feeling this good sometimes. Like I'm not used to feeling okay in my own uh, brain or something. Um, How do you reconcile those two sides of yourself on this record? Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny because this record, I what I think of like now when I think of these songs is like this hesitation to like accept good things, um, yeah. to accept like love that is not tainted or, you know, hard or complicated. I mean, all love is complicated, but just those moments, you know, to feel kind of comfortable in them has always been hard for me. And so writing wise, how did I reconcile it? I don't know. It was just the place that I was. I'd kind of 
finally processed a, a very long breakup and had started dating somebody uh, when I was writing this record. And um, it just felt like I was between a past kind of self and a, and a transforming self. And it was this this record to me is kind of like I was walking the line. Of, I was hesitant, but also feeling good and but also not forgetting how bad it can feel <laughs> as well. So, yeah, because I think if you've had your heart broken uh, once, twice, a million times, you know, it feels like when things are so uh, honeymoon period that yeah. it's like it's like it's a it's a waterfall that's about to crest mm-hmm. and then you're going to tumble down and the the falling, you know, is thrilling. But also these are the good old days. That song has that bubbly, almost 50s rock and roll vibe but that 50s rock and roll thing always has a hint of like sadness darkness you know like if this person leaves me i will die you know it's like those old duop songs like everything that i feel right now could be ripped away if this person changes their mind yeah 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 i think that's uh that's definitely a lot of the you know theme thematically this record is is definitely writing all that writing that line so in the back seat of his car head at the window as towards the stars big pink moon through the cypress trees tells me loves me You're from Phoenix originally? I am, yes. Like, Phoenix is not one of those places where you're like, yeah, the artistic hotbed of talent, Phoenix, Arizona. (laughs) But there's got to be a bunch of people. Like, who are the other people that you know who came out of there? Or are there other folks who... Um, You know, Phoenix is actually, like, growing up, I always knew a lot of, like, visual artists. Like, Arizona has so Mm. many painters and visual artists. And when I was growing up, there was, like, a kind of a little folk scene. I used to throw this folk festival when I was a teenager and there's like 10 songwriters around my age, you know, varying be- between eight years older and like a couple years younger. And yeah, I mean, there was definitely a lot of like songwriters at the time when I was uh, coming up. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's kind of like, it's always been a place where kind of DIY or punk forms from because it's so not an artistic place in a lot of ways so I feel like you have to sort of fight to be a freak in the place you know which kind of creates I think even more of a freak like Uh like in a city of full of freaks it's like okay you're just like any Joe Schmo but if you're like in Phoenix and you're trying to be an artist it's like you are different and you are fighting against the current right (laughs) it's like when I remember I talked to uh John McRae from Cake and the coolest thing about that band for me I mean I love their music and I think they're incredibly underrated actually but that they never even when they had like radio hits and and kind of big selling records they always like stayed in Sacramento they like never 
<laughs> relocated or like signed on some big label or had anyone produce their stuff. They just like, no, we made it like in our backyard studio and pretty much for Sacramento. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's pretty punk rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're not trying to, not trying to live the LA life or anything. Just stand true. I mean, there's always, there's a million ways to be an artist, right? You know, everybody has a different path and story and background. Um, I think I read a quote once, it was like paraphrasing, but you, you truly don't, you know, it, there are great artists in every form, you know, from wealthy families, from poor families, from, um, you know, your background doesn't choose great art <laughs> well i think it's not a choice at a certain point right i mean being a touring artist especially uh and you've toured pretty hard for the last decade um it's not like an easy life and yeah. there's no guarantee that anyone will continue to care about the work you put out especially if you're not like the new up-and-coming artist right i think that what you've created, uh, you know, with old flowers and honest life, it's like a very personal snapshot of these parts of your life that people can somehow kind of drop themselves into. Um, and you know, look, if you've had a breakup, if you've had that, those moments where you need to really like process something, those records I think are super powerful and people felt that you know, which is great. I mean, do you feel like people come up to you, or at least when you were touring on Old Flowers, especially that people were like using you as like a therapist or something? Like, yeah, that record particular does particularly does have a lot of people telling me personal moments attached to the record. Um, you know, like, oh, we, you know, this was if I told it was on our wedding playlist, or I went through a breakup, and this record really helped me. You know. That record specifically was like very um, connected in that way to my audience. So please go home now. I can sleep on my own. I'm alone now. But I don't feel alone. You can't water It is amazing. I mean, when folks connect themselves to your lyrics, especially, and, and I mean, I've had grown men sort of come up to me in the middle of the street and be like, you know, this song that you wrote about the car crash, you know, I cry every time I hear it driving my truck, you know, and it's, it's like, I've never met this person. And it's, it's obviously why you hope to create art. But I think there's a an uncomfortable truth, especially in like the more trauma and the more hurt that Courtney feels, the more we want to listen or like the more we want to talk about it, you know, yeah. like yeah. how much pain did you feel on together and or alone, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's, it, I mean, and, and you, you know, that's sort of, I guess the, 
the price you pay. It's like, I'm presenting this pain for you. Yeah. Every night on yeah. stage with a light on me. Yeah. Well, it's the human, it's the human experience, you know? I think you have to love that. You have to love relaying your human experience as a songwriter. Um, and luckily, you know, I've, I feel the songs I sing every night, but luckily I feel like once, once I've kind of recorded them, they're not mine anymore. And mm. I can sometimes feel the emotions that I had when I wrote them, but I don't want to say that I feel detached when I'm singing them, but I, I'm not like reopening the wound every night unless something personal is happening in my life that is uh -huh. kind of reinvigorating those feelings. It's like, it's like I can sing them without dying every night, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> without just being obliterated. So I think you, you kind of have to like for survival, it's like a doctor that needs to sort of always like, they can't see death all the time in a way where they can't like, I mean, they can see death, but they can't feel it. They can't feel everyone in the way that a family member would or something, you know? As a songwriter, you kind of have to, like, remove yourself from the initial feeling in some ways. There's a through line between that song, Together or Alone, from Old Flowers, and Change My Mind, mm. where you don't believe this person that you're falling for or who loves you, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't believe a word you said, but I loved those pretty lies. And on Change My Mind, something deep inside me like won't believe you. Mm. Like I don't recognize the way you see me and the way you love me. I don't believe that this can be this real and this awesome, you know? Yeah, um, I feel like that's also like a, that's also like a something that happens when you're young and in love too, is that you don't believe that somebody could love you because maybe you're, you don't believe that you love yourself. So right. I feel like a lot of that belief is like a worry, like how could somebody, you know, risk it all? It, it's, it's a real feeling I feel like a lot of us feel. I don't recognize the way you see me. I don't recognize the way you love Something deep inside me won't believe you Even when you tell me I'm enough Well, I think the masochistic uh, <laughs> thing that songwriters do sometimes when they fall over the edge of being fully in love with someone and committing is you would think like oh you'd write the sweetest love song but like I think when I realized that my now wife and I were going to be like a real lasting thing I wrote that car crash song right it's like the saddest most horrifying possible ending that you really don't want to have to experience almost like I had to like get it out. Yeah. And then people are like, oh, well that must've really hurt you, this event that happened. You're like, no, no, it's like, it, oh, it could have happened. Yeah. And I hope it doesn't ever happen. And that's yeah. almost like when you love someone so much, it's like the fear of losing them, the fear of them disappearing is also on the other side of that mm. love, you know? Yeah. 
I really do believe that like once you've experienced like immense heartbreak that you can always bring it up. Like yeah. since experiencing it myself, I feel like even, you know, when I've fallen in love, you know, after that, um, and when I fall in love, wh whenever that is again, <laughs> I, I will like, I'll be able to always like drum up those feelings, you know, if I need to. But I think that there's something really beautiful and challenging about writing songs, like a true love song or like emotions that you, that aren't touched or like lauded, like, like you were saying, like people are almost obsessed by pain in a way. Um, and I think that there are pain, pain and love. These are topics that run throughout the veins of everybody, but I feel like that there are so many emotions yet to be explored in writing and the greatest writers that I love explore all of them, you know? I don't recognize the way you see me I don't recognize the way you love Do you remember the first love song you ever wrote for like a teenage crush was that a thing you know yeah one of my first but there it was never like a love you know it was never like a sweet love song <laughs> unfortunately i my first love song was called morbid love go on <laughs> i don't remember what it's about but you can probably sense vampires it was, yeah <laughs> it was a very emo child punk emo child no i I think I started writing from a place of longing from the beginning. I think I, I longed quite heavily as a kid. I spent a lot of time as a teenager alone. I raised myself because my mother had two jobs and I was an only child. And so I wrote to, to long, you know, and I, it's, I never quite could grasp the thing, like the, the you know, it was like what invigorated my writing was like something I didn't have, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like getting to a place where I can write comfortably about things that I have and are so abundant and beautiful in my life has been a challenge <laughs> because I literally started writing because I was longing for mm -hmm. something, you know, for love, for connection, for friendship. And also, you know, one of my best friends had this guy kind of running around on her when we were in like high school. And I, like one of my first songs was like a song about him and how he kind of, you know, was screwing around. It was called like Five Girl World or something stupid like that. But it was like it, you know, I, I wanted to write about the kind of darker underbelly of things um, and was always more interested in things people didn't have or things people longed for or like the whole picture and not being hallmark you know I, I don't think I've ever been interested in like hallmark kind of love you know I want the real stuff um and so I like to write about the real stuff I mean definitely the emo sensibility is almost like coming back into fashion somehow you know that kind of angsty like ah, I want it so bad yeah but I can't have it yeah and, you know, obviously you were a part of uh, the Jimmy Eat World universe for a bit there. Um, did you think that you would be, as a songwriter, in this more 
folk Americana world or did you see yourself being in a more rock pop place? No, I, I didn't think about genre. I just, I really just thought I was a songwriter and publicists put me where they thought I should be, you know? So <laughs> it wasn't like, I'm going to be an Americana artist. Like it was yeah. like, you know, I, I just loved great songwriting um, and wanted to make records that were timeless um, and still do and hope to continue to make records that are timeless and like, or if I am, I don't know if they will be or, but I hope so, you know, and I, I think I just want to like, my goal is to just be a songwriter that writes great songs. Um, and people classify that one way or the other, and that makes it easier for them than so be it, you know? What did you learn from being in that Jimmy Eat world kind of, uh, on that stage like what did what what kind of seeped in there um well I was a child I was 19 years old um and I was like just doing basically like Greyhound bus tours my own kind of DIY booked like tours and stuff and then I went from literally on the Greyhound bus got a call from them and was like do you want to come be in our band as like a backup singer and I said sure why not and so they taught me everything I knew about the industry I didn't know I literally did not know what it meant to be in the music industry. Um, I thought it was like something as simple as kind of like hitchhiking around and playing for people in cafes. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't really ever think of it as like this operation, you know, or didn't know it was an operation until they took me out. So they taught, you know, I was a kid, I was like 19. So they taught me a lot um, about how it all works. I mean, I think there's, uh, really great lessons to be learned when you're uh, a young person going out there. I would say hard touring is a young person's game in a way, right? Like I feel like now as we are in our mid thirties, me lurching towards 40, um, the idea that like, oh yeah, I used to sleep on people's floors and couches and like, I'm glad I did that. Yeah. I don't know if I could do that now you know yeah I'm glad I did that in my 20s too there's a lot of people that start out later and it's not as you know it's not quite possible Uh, but also like the idealism of being a young person be like I don't care who books us or where it is yeah we're playing and someone will be listening anyone will be listening and that was so like important you know yeah. And um, do you have a, a first show moment in your mind where you felt like, wait a second, like something really special is happening here where people were really starting to come to hear your words and your songs? I think like I will. The very first time that happened was really shocking. I just released Honest Life and I went over to Europe and I'd gotten to play Jules Holland and I had booked this tour. You know, this my agent had booked me a tour and. I showed up to Cardiff, Wales, and there was 130 people there, and it was sold out. And I was like, I'd never experienced that. Um, And really could not believe it, that there were people there to see me, um, because they'd heard my music. Mm. It was a, you know, because up until that moment, I think it was like 27, 26, no, 26. Mm -hmm. You know, up until that moment, I really, um, there was never anybody at my shows, unless I was opening for somebody locally in Seattle, or I did a couple opening tours of Damien Gerardo, you know, and played in his band. And 
that sort of thing, but never had I experienced a show of mine in a foreign country, nonetheless, like where people just showed up and it was a wild feeling. I couldn't believe it. All I've ever needed was a little time to grow, little time to understand all the things that I know, so I can listen to you lovingly instead of getting up to go. Some people take a little more time to grow. Well, that song, Rookie Dreaming on uh, Honest Life, I think captures that hard traveling, you know, sort of town to town, maybe that Greyhound bus tour feeling, you know. Yeah. With the choir on the train, like almost like you're like a nameless troubadour going from town to town, like selling your wares, you know. Yeah. Because it does feel like we're traveling salesmen sometimes. Yeah, it does. You know, after shows, you're like, would you like a trinket to take home? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my friend Amy always used to say, meet me in the gift shop afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Where do you think the most uh, surprising audience or following that you've built is? Is it in, in Europe or, or do you feel like there's a, a, a town that for some reason is obsessed with you? Um, yeah, I've, I've done really well over in, over in Europe and the UK and, uh, I guess Sweden is a surprise, you know, Sweden's always really great to go to. I'm, I'm, I just feel lucky to be able to go anywhere and have people show up. Kind of still blows my mind, you know. It was fun to go to Sweden because our, uh, our trombone player is from Stockholm, um, and he comes from this family where his father was a, a famous conductor over there a lot of these like kind of very genteel classical music people will come to our shows and then he's playing this very kind of soul funk trombone and they're like oh my because <laughs> yeah. they knew his they knew his dad is this like you know guy who interpreted Bach and and, and Beethoven you know so you wrote a lot of these songs on Loose Future uh, in like a, was it like a shack in Cape Cod? Did I read that right? Yeah, I, uh, my friend had this uh, this little shack that she was staying in Wellfleet, and um, I started writing it there, uh, quarantining with her. <laughs> so it was a very inspiring place. It was, you know, you could walk to the beach in a, 10 minutes, and it was like a perfect place to be for that time. Do you start writing without pen and paper or with your phone? Do you, do you start humming to yourself? Do you, do you have it sort of, does mel do melodies come without guitar piano first or do you have the chords first? Uh, both a lot lately. It's been on walks. I'll, I'll walk and think of a line or a song and then go home and write with a guitar. Um, but I've written like entire songs on walks without a guitar. Where did loose future like that concept hit you um that was actually that was a that started out by a phrase i i was dating somebody for a bit and you know we were joking when we first started dating like you never know it's a loose future i said that out loud and then we both laughed and we were like it should be a that should be a song and i went home and wrote it with my friend kate like a couple months later 
scariest part i think as we realize that we're not young people anymore is that the future is still vast right people live to 90 to 100 you know uh you look at your your parents and, and how they ended up right um for good or for bad and you can see how like the fork in the road starts to form right I can become like my dad or not, you know? Uh, and there's things where I think as a kid, you're like, yeah, of course I want to be like my dad. And then you're like, wait a second. No, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> Probably want to do your own thing. Um, does your mom have a relationship with your music? I have no idea how I, I mean, my, my mother took me to this, karaoke bar when I was a kid called Mr. Lucky's and I used to sing there every Friday night for the Friday Night Fish Fry in Phoenix, Arizona. It was this kind of legendary like country western bar that a lot of uh, you know crazy famous singers had sang out over the years and I went there and just fell in love with singing. I just started you know doing karaoke singing um, songs, uh, sang Annie the Orphan songs and that sort of thing. But my mother wasn't a musician or anything. Either was my dad. Um, my dad's side has a very big interest. You know, they were old kind of hippies that traveled around and went to concerts and that sort of thing. So they, they have a deep knowledge of music on my dad's side. They're all big music fans. Um, but yeah, in general, I just don't know why I became a musician. It just wasn't... Um, my mom worked at Walmart and... Um, and Target, and my dad is a roofer, so I have no idea how I became a musician. <laughs> I mean, I, I really do think that they're both why not? repressed, you know, artists in some hmm. ways. Where like they were, they're both like, you know, could have been, you know, my mother probably could have been a painter or something, and or a creative. Um, so yeah. When you were singing at the Fish Fry, you probably didn't imagine that you would one day be on stage singing nine to five with Dolly <laughs> and Cheryl Crow. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, but I knew I wanted to, to go go somewhere, go places. I've always been excited for the adventure. So, In your dream scenario, who would you sing with on a nightly basis? Like if you put together a fantasy tour of like five living artists who would be with you man that's really hard uh honestly it wouldn't be anybody famous 
I would love to tour with people that are well known, obviously, but um, I think it would be. I've always wanted to like recreate um, the Canadian train tour that that the Dead and Joplin did. I thought I've always thought that mm-hmm. would be really fun, um, and do it with like you know ten artists or something uh, that are all writing. There's just so many great artists out there. That's a really hard question. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> Well, that's no fun. But yeah, I think I think the problem is that like a lot of the people that I love, especially yeah, like do they have commercial viability and some sort of you know ticket buying enterprise? I don't know. You know, a uh, lot of them don't. That's yeah. yes, no. <laughs> I, I all the people I'm big like all my modern peers that I'm big fans of don't have big followings. They're not commercial, but they make fucking amazing music. Being being commercial does not mean great art necessarily. It can mean great art, obviously, but um, yeah. I mean, I, I guess that question's hard for me because it's like, you know, I don't know. It could be so many beautiful artists that nobody would know. I think it would be fun to see that song, Thinking On You, with like a full orchestra at the Hollywood Bowl. Like, I would like to see that for you. Well, thank you. Like, <laughs> I would, that you know, would be great. Let's make it happen. <laughs> like a fireworks show, like yeah. John Williams conducting. Yeah. Yeah. I'll call some people, see if we can pull some strings. <laughs> I mean, why not? Yeah. Where is your favorite venue to play right now? Um, favorite venue to play? Well, venue that I've played the past couple years a couple times is the Union Chapel in London, which is just like this beautiful old chapel that just like doesn't even look real when you're in it. It's like mm-hmm. um, I've gotten to play some of those beautiful old places in, in Europe that I really love. Um, I always love playing. I just played the Troubadour in LA, which was a dream. I've always wanted to play the Troubadour. Um, yeah, there is something about the Troubadour that, um, you know, there's a few venues that somehow have retained a mystique or like an energy. Um, you know, is it the best sounding room? No. Like, is it a super comfortable watch for an audience member? Not really. <laughs> but it like feels important somehow when you're in there, like, like something. I just think it's like the history is going to happen. Yeah. It's just like the history of it just makes it special and that it's still running. There's like so so few clubs uh, with that history that are still open. Most of them have like closed. So it's pretty wild that it's still running. It's awesome. Was there a show on maybe one of those early Greyhound tours or even recently where you felt like it was so bad that you questioned your life decisions. Um, not on the Greyhound bus tours because those were like so early on that I didn't have any expectations to be honest. But right before I made Honest Life, 
I went on this opening tour. Um, me and my ex rolled around in a Honda Accord and we thought it was going to be an opening tour like where people were going to show up and stuff. And all of our deals were like door deals. So we didn't make <laughs> any money because there was only like two to five people there like every night. Here's and, $7. Yeah, exactly. And that was the first time that I can remember and maybe the only time where I was like, what am I doing? And I think it was like, I think it's the expectation that always sets you up for disappointment. And I was also right. like really broke at the time. I think I had like a couple hundred dollars in my bank account and like could barely make the tour happen. And so, yeah, I think like that was the only time I can remember. And it was like a, I want to give up moment. And then like literally that was when like maybe months later, Honest Life came out and it was like everything changed. <laughs> so yeah, it was kind of just like a funny, funny last kind of universe cackle, I guess. It is amazing how many folks I've talked to where it's like right before they're about to give up or like the album they put out, who is it saying? Like his golden messenger. Like he was like, yeah, this was my farewell album. This was like 10 years ago, you know, like I yeah. was, you know, going to go work as a tree, you know, a tree architect. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a classic story. <laughs> like maybe I should write a record where I like just be like, you know, maybe this is my time to give up, but like yeah. not actually give up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like a lot of bands, you know, are starting to be more honest about the really tough economic situation that we're put in with yeah. the travel costs, with um, being an independent band, having to pay for all your own publicity and hotels and flights and and it's just it's an impossible situation for especially for bands that have a bunch of people in them like you know we we've always had a seven eight piece band and that's just always the way it's been with brass and whatever i realize that that's irresponsible at times but that's like the energy that i want to put into the world yeah and then you get slapped in the face with the with the result of less shows less festivals at times and then more of these costs and like i don't know how to juggle it a lot of times and you can't like ask your fans to like help with that that's not their responsibility you know yeah, yeah. Not, they're not yeah. they're not you know responsible for the predicament you're in so um it's like unless you have three, 400 people coming in every night. It's like hard to figure out how to make it economically viable, you know, a lot of times. I mean, I think everybody's pretty aware. I, I'm in a place where I can do a band tour for a few months and then do a solo tour to like recoup, you know, Yeah. Um, which is really helpful. Uh, but it, you know, it's not always easy, you know, it's uh it's pretty hard for everyone right now. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's uh nobody's like you know, maybe except for a few like, you know, raking it in or anything. But I'm just I'm honestly I'm astounded that I get to do this like to Yeah. Okay. Um and if I could keep that if I could keep my you know, rent paid and that sort of thing um with what I do then I don't know. It's pretty, pretty awesome. Well, I think, you know, like a song like Older Now maybe can 
remind us that the anxiety of ambition is not worth it sometimes. Like you have to realize that like I am where I am right now, it's good enough. And actually it's pretty good. If you can view it without the relentless expectation of more and more and more, you know? Yeah, the the more thing has gotten me in trouble and it's gotten a lot of my artist friends in trouble and you know, it still still does get me in trouble occasionally. You know, it's good to strive for more, and I try always to strive for for more, whatever that is, like more art, more connection, more uh, like income, I guess. Um, but the, at the end of the day, if you're making any income and you're an artist, that's pretty insane. <laughs> You know, like it's pretty like crazy. It's pretty crazy. But that line, I want to get it right this time in older now, I think signifies that like we tried a bunch of other stuff, right? We tried the relentless ambition. We tried the um, letting someone else dictate who we are or like how much we're worth, right? Yeah. Um, What do you think this album sort of says about where you are right now? Hmm. Um, I look at Loose Future, it feels like I'm already past it hilariously because I've, you know, written so many songs right. since Loose Future, but to me, the record really felt like a doorway, like mm-hmm. I was standing between what's, what's been my life up to that moment and what's been, what's coming, you know, and it kind of opened up a world for me of like possibility um uh that i that any kind of record is worth kind of pursuing and ex- yeah any sort of creative endeavor is worth ex- pursuing and so if, to me it feels like you know in both and in love too like my hesitance and my fear you know f- falling in with somebody with you know my past and all that sort of thing like it just feels like a doorway it feels like i'm reckoning with my past but like looking to the future And I'm trying to enjoy now with those two things, kind of like one on the outside, one on the inside, you know? Is there an artist that we wouldn't expect you to be obsessed with that like is in your like weekly listening habits? Frank Sinatra. All right. The Cure. I like those back to back. That's that's a fun. I'm obsessed with Frank Sinatra. There's that uh, screening room at USC that I remember seeing a, a movie at. It's like the Frank Sinatra 
like I don't know why for some reason he paid for the screening room and it's just got all of his gold records from the floor to the ceiling like this 20 foot wall wow. <laughs> just like whoa okay let's let's spread the love a little <laughs> fill my heart with song and let me sing forevermore you are all I long for, all I worship and adore. In other words, please be true. In other words, I love you. All right, last question. You can have a duet with a ghost. Any artist who has passed on from this world you can record a song with them who would that artist be mickey newberry oh who's that oh so good um just like a beautiful writer and singer from the 70s 60s 70s that was an immediate answer mm-hmm. good look, one look up that name, folks. This is what this show is for. <laughs> I left Decatur hell bent to forget. Bought a ticket to Skyhigan, Maine. I wound up in Seattle, so drunk and so rattled. Thought I'd caught the wrong train Found some fast, easy women And some hard-drinking men I Swore I'd drown a sorrow in me I once had a lot But the future was not not what it used to be. Well, thank you for jumping on, and uh, I really appreciate the art you're making, and uh, I can't wait to see what comes out of those 30 songs you just wrote. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. No place left to go. Made the missions by morning. Made the dives every night Till I made a wreck of my body and soul Well, you learn something new every day. <laughs> that was Courtney Marie Andrews, and uh, you're listening to Mickey Newberry, who uh, may be my favorite new singer-songwriter discovery. Uh, he's not with us anymore, but you know what? Music lives on forever. I might just put him on my radio show this week. The Sway Out West Radio Hour is every Saturday morning, 7 a.m. on 88.5, the SoCal Sound, here in L.A. If you want to learn more about Courtney Marie Andrews, go to CourtneyMarieAndrews.com. Her newest record on Fat Possum Records is Loose Future. It is a gorgeous one. Please check it out. Get it on vinyl and go see her live in concert if you can. In May, Courtney Marie Andrews will be playing in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Madison, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, Chicago, and more. And actually, my group, Dust Bowl Revival, will also be heading to the Great Lakes. Great Lakes, great times, I've been told. 
Uh, we'll be playing up in Duluth, Minnesota. Never been up there. Uh, it's going to be a place called the West Theater on the 8th of June, the 9th at the Parkway Theater in Minneapolis, and the 10th Saturday night in my hometown of Evanston, Illinois, Chicago, at Space and then uh, finishing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, at the back room at Collectivo. As always, the show on the road is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupiton, and we are part of the BGS Podcast Network. You can donate to keep this show going on the show page on iTunes. There's a nice little red circle link there. Do me a favor. Send a couple shekels my way. And you can always leave us a review on the iTunes page. It helps people find the show. Okay, we'll see you in a couple weeks with more episodes. I know her pain. I know her need. I once loved her a lot. But the future's just not. Not what it used to be Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.